Good afternoon and welcome to the 216th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. Today is the third of three COVID Calls special episodes in partnership with two great research libraries, the American Philosophical Society and the Linda Hall Library. These episodes will explore challenges and new approaches for research libraries and the patrons that use them in the time of COVID. And today, I welcome Nicole Schroeder and Andrew Seaton to the broadcast. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 5th, 2021, there are 2,292,029 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 457,755 deaths reported in the United States. 6.9 million people in the United States have been fully vaccinated. That's according to the New York Times. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Larry Dean Innes. It appeared in the Cleburne Times Review in Texas, February 1st, 2021. Larry Dean Innes, Lieutenant Commander, U.S. Public Health Service, Commissioned Corps Reserve, age 78, died Tuesday, January 19th, 2021, from complications of COVID after a long illness. Larry was born August 26, 1942, in Woodward, Oklahoma, to James Newton Innes and Geraldine Riddle Innes. He spent his elementary years in Woodward, but moved to Laverne, Oklahoma, where he resided with his great aunt, Sylvia Grace, and Uncle Glenn. He graduated from Laverne High School in 1960. He attended Northwestern Oklahoma State University in Alva, Oklahoma, then transferred Southwestern Oklahoma State College of Pharmacy in Weatherford, Oklahoma in 1963. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in pharmacy in 1966. While attending pharmacy school in 1965, Larry met Paula Sue White of Cleburne, Texas, a first-year pharmacy student, and it was love at first sight. They were married in July of 1966 in Cleburne, and he was appointed to the commissioned corps of the United States Public Health Service to serve at the Indian Health Services in Winslow, Arizona until 1968. Their daughter, Ashley, was born in Winslow in 1967. Larry returned to Oklahoma and worked as a retail pharmacist, then taught pharmaceutical dispensing at the College of Pharmacy at Southwestern Oklahoma State University while Paula finished her pharmacy degree. The family moved to Gainesville, Texas in 1975, where Larry was employed by Page Drug until 1989 when he transferred to Fort Worth, Texas. He retired in 2007 after serving the community as a retail pharmacist for 40 years. Larry was active in the Dallas-Fort Worth Dotson Club and served as president twice, 
been on the board of directors for many years. He was a fundamental part also of the Texas Scottish Festival in Arlington, Texas for 30 years, where he served as Klan Tent Coordinator. He served the Innes Klan Society as president, treasurer, and as the Texas commissioner for 20 years. Larry loved his wife and daughter wholeheartedly. He enjoyed his dachshunds, gatherings with family and friends, dancing, golfing, cruising in his 55 T-Bird, Oklahoma University Sooner football, and having a wee dram with friends. He proceeded in death by his parents, and he survived by his wife and his daughter, Ashley Innes Dumas, and husband Stephen of Irving, grandchildren Cassidy and Alex Dumas, brothers Richard Innes of Friendswood, and James Innes of Gainesville, and many nephews, nieces, and cousins. In lieu of flowers, the family respectfully requests memorial contributions in Larry's honor to either the Dallas-Fort Worth Dotson's Rescue Foundation or the Veterans Administration. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation today. And first, I'd like to bring out for the third day in a row, really happy to see Adriana Link, who serves as the head of his scholarly programs at the American Philosophical Society and has been my partner in academic crime these last three days. Um, Adriana put really programmed these three conversations, and it's great to see you again. How are you doing today, Adriana? I'm doing okay, Scott. Um, it's been really fun doing this. Thank you so much again for for partnering with us. I've I've loved doing this programming. I've never really had a um, a co-host three days in a row. I've had Shivani Patel and others who've sort of served that that role on as a one-off. But I really like having someone at the beginning to bounce ideas off. What did you think of about yesterday's conversation? I mean, it was everything that I would have hoped for and more. When when we were first talking about this partnership, I mean, Joanna and Robin were two names that immediately came to mind, um, not only because they're uh, brilliant people who have used uh, many, many atheist materials, um, but just because they have such great things to say and, and are, are quick to reflect on, on both our present moment and, and really thinking about its implications for the future. So I, I thought it was great. They really were interested in talking about uh, the language of biomedicine and biomedical research. And that was that's a fascination of mine. And it, it, it went certain directions I wasn't really expecting. I really appreciated that part. And then um, I learned some new things about some collections I didn't know about. For example, um, Baruch Bloomberg, who I'd heard of but really didn't know much about, particularly from the perspective of the of the papers. Yeah, no, and, and Bloomberg's papers in particular are, are such an untapped resource. I, I mean, I think we saw that really nicely in, in the discussion yesterday. Um, and I, and I want to use this actually, if you'll allow, Scott, I, I want to plug a, a new opportunity um, that, that the APS is, is offering um, to, to really highlight its history of biology materials. And, and that's a, a fellowship. Uh, it's called the Jacques uh, Barzan Fellowship uh, for Collections and Programming in the History of Biology. Uh, and the idea uh, behind it is, is really to give a, a PhD student or an early career uh, scholar who's, who's interested in maybe going into uh, archival work uh, an opportunity to get some experience uh, with processing our collections uh, by helping to improve access to our history of science materials uh, by working up a new uh, finding aid in 20th century biology, um, but also an opportunity to find some of the, the hidden voices in our, our collections. So thinking back to the conversations about access and accessibility in our finding aids, I mean, this is really uh, in that in that vein. Um, so to, to help find uh, you know, voices in the collections, 
uh, and, to, and to help with our programming and development of educational resources. So it's, it's really an exciting uh, opportunity for, for someone who's looking to, to get more involved with um, uh, libraries and archives and collections. I really appreciate that idea. I had a conversation not long ago with Scott Cooper, who's the head of the um, Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. And he talked about this, this real problem, having such a vast collection. Um, and this was in the context of sort of decolonizing the collection and really sort of brainstorming about where do you even start with that? And I was describing that to another colleague and they said, yeah, probably a lot of people who don't know what we do don't understand that we have to go back into the collection. Once you've processed a collection and written about it, it's done, right? And I said, no, that's not how this works. No, I don't think that that's how it works at all. And that's why it's so great that we've had so many uh, younger scholars and, and older scholars too, but, but really early career scholars and PhD students, like the ones we'll hear from today, um, who are coming in and rethinking um, the, these collections that, that uh, you know, everybody thinks they know what's there, but really there's so much more left to be learned. Tell us, um, just before we say goodbye to you again, how people can apply for that fellowship or how more generally they can keep um, active with APS programming and with opportunities at APS. Sure. So the, that fellowship is, is listed uh, on our fellowships page on our website, uh, which is, again, www.amphilsoc.org. Uh, and if anybody has any questions, um, feel free to, to send me an email. Uh, you can re reach me at a uh, link. A-L-I-N-K uh, at amphilsoc.org. I'm really happy to answer any questions you have about that and all of our programming. Okay, just putting that up there, www.amphilsoc.org, and people can find out more by writing to Adriana Link directly. Okay, well, I think I'm going to get to the conversation. Again, thanks for all your help in putting together these three conversations, Adriana. It's Talk been to my you soon. pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay, I'm going to turn to our conversation for today. I'd like to introduce my guests. Nicole Schroeder is a PhD candidate at the University of Virginia and a current Dolores Liebman Fund Fellow. In 2018-19, she held the Friends of the APS Predoctoral Fellowship in Early American History to 1840 at the American Philosophical Society. And from 2019-20, she held the program in Early American Economy and Society Predoctoral Fellowship at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Nicole studies the history of disability, welfare, and medicine in early America. My second guest is Andrew Seaton. Andrew's a PhD candidate in history at New York University. His dissertation explores the relationship between politics, society, and universal health care through a transnational history of the British National Health Service. Andrew argues that his that this pivotal post-war institution demonstrates overlooked endurances to social democratic structures and political cultures. This interpretation challenges historical narratives that map the rising hegemony of late 20th century neoliberalism. His research scales from the everyday work that embedded communitarian ideals in hospital wards and health centers across Britain to the health services wider significance in transatlantic discussions about health reform, processes of decolonization, and the movement of medical professionals across borders. Andrew has published articles in 20th Century British History and the Bulletin of the History of Medicine. Andrew Seaton and Nicole Schroeder, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there today. Nicole, can I start with you, please? Sure. I am in Millbury, Massachusetts, 
which is in Worcester County, um, about 30 to 40 minutes outside of Boston. Um, so very close to where Robin was calling in from yesterday. Um, the situation here is getting better, like it is across the country, but we are having major issues with our vaccine rollout, as I think is, you know, happening across most of the country as well. Um, so our um, elderly populations are finally eligible for vaccination, um, but there have been major issues with our website and our call center, um, scheduling those appointments, ensuring that people have access to the sites of inoculation um, that they need to go to. One of the things I'm always curious about, and thanks for that context, how do you keep up with the sort of day-to-day of the pandemic. I, I've, I've talked to so many people about this, and it's surprising people often have quite different ways of keeping track of what the pandemic is, does look like in their in their neighborhood. What do you rely on? Yeah, I think it depends really on your mental health state and where you're where you're at personally. Um, I try to limit my news intake every day to a half an hour. Um, so I read through NPR in the morning. I check the Johns Hopkins COVID dashboard. I read local newspapers, um, and then I try to cut myself off. Um, whether or not that is successful most days is questionable. Um, but I think that it's important to have boundaries right now um, because it is very easy to just get caught up in the news cycle all day. That is, I'm going to try that. <laughs> That's a tremendous idea. Thank you for that. Nicola, um, thanks. Andrew, let's bring you in. Same question, where are you calling from? And how's the pandemic um, looking there? Yeah, hi Scott. So I'm I'm calling from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, calling from my apartment. Um, similar as, as Nicole was saying, I mean things are slightly better than than they were. Certainly in New York, when it was the was the the epicenter of the pandemic back last March April, we're, we're not anything like that anymore. But cases are still very high uh, in in New York City, um, and the kind of current um, Discussion in the city is, is uh, as in many places, about indoor dining and uh, whether to reopen uh, indoor dining up in the city. They did. Uh, they did that uh, last September. The governor uh, Andrew Cuomo reopened dining, indoor dining, up twenty five percent, and then they had to shut it back down because cases went back up. And apparently, there's a, the, 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 there's considerations about reopening for Valentine's Day. Uh, on the on the fourteenth of February, so that seems to be the uh, the as well as obviously the the vaccination drives and the problems with that. that a, a lot of kind of um, issues that don't seem to go away about whether to you know open restaurants or not. These kinds of things. I remember seeing some. I haven't been into the city since the pandemic started, but I, I remember seeing some um, photographs of the outdoor dining which had become so elaborate that it basically was indoor dining. Yeah. Is that still going on or have they kind of cracked down on that? Yeah, no, that's still going on. Um, I mean, as you said, a lot of places opened, um, well, expanded their outdoor dining uh, capacities uh, onto the streets. And in some ways, you know, I, I, I would like to see that stay. That's, you know, it's a nice feature, especially in the summer. It was it was nice. Um, but as you said, a lot of the, the structures that they built for quote unquote outdoor dining, to me, they don't look that different from indoor dining. You know, they've got four walls and a, and a door. Uh, but, um, you know, apparently they, they, they get by the, the regulations of what's allowed. 
wanted to kind of, after hearing a bit about where where you are, um, maybe hear a little bit from each of you about what your year has been like. I mean, each of you share um, the fact that you're working, you're in the midst of really intense research and writing projects, dissertation projects. Um, and so it's a really unique perspective to get. And I wonder, Andrew, let me let me stay with you and then Nicole will come to you. Just um, what's it been like for you this year in terms of, well, anything you really want to really want to talk about um, coping with the pandemic, getting your work done, getting to the university? What's it been like? Yeah. So, I mean, on the face of it, I've been very lucky in the sense that, uh, you know, I have a job which allows me to work inside and and, and I, I, I appreciate that um compared to a lot of other people's situation but um finishing a dissertation during a, a pandemic has been very difficult um you know i i think if you'd asked me how i imagined i would have finished writing my dissertation when i started it i would have had images of being in a library with large stacks of books and so on but nothing could be further from that uh it was mainly just with me at my my kitchen table um and so, I, I mean, you know, very obvious challenges include, you know, not having access to books, not having access to, to, um, to libraries, to kind of in-person, uh, research materials, particularly primary sources. If, you know, if I've needed to go check any of those, I've not been able to. So that's been very difficult. Um, but, um, a lot of it has been, uh, writing, which on, you know, on the other hand, it, it's, I would be doing that regardless. Personally, I mean, I'm an international student and um, some of the um, issues particular to being an international student have really um, been exacerbated during the pandemic, particularly with, with visas and, and, and border changes. So, you know, over the last year, um, the Trump administration uh, was playing with uh, student F1 visas, uh, changing the rules to basically encourage international students to go in person into classes. Um, and if you weren't able to do that or you didn't want to do that, there was a kind of implied threat that your visa would no longer be, uh, viable. So that, that was, that was a very stressful part of last year was trying to negotiate, negotiate and interpret these very complicated uh, sort of ad hoc rulings that the administration was 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 giving out of visas. That was, you know, I remember hearing something about that at at Drexel, but I haven't actually spoken with anyone that that really impacted. So the administration, this is in that time that they were really pushing the idea that all teachers should go back into classrooms. Yeah. They can't do that. They couldn't do that from Washington and four states what to do. But of course, with the immigration policy, that's a place where they can take direct action. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of it was was part of a desire to to, you know, show that things were reopening and everything was fine and going back to normal. And, and you know, students being in classrooms is, is part of the image guess, of what we have of what that looks like. So for them, it was, you know, promoting that. But um, obviously, a lot of people don't want to or can't do that during a pandemic, understandably. So um the you know the implied threat that if you didn't go in person that your visa would no longer be viable was was um was quite scary actually 
that's kind of like the last thing you need to be thinking about while you're trying to understand a big swath of history with multiple different, you know, analytical layers. You should be, your brain shouldn't be focused on those things. No. No. Nicole, let me bring you in kind of with the same question. It's too much to ask you to tell us the whole year, but some of the things that stand out to you in terms of dealing with the pandemic year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I actually, unfortunately, had to leave a fellowship a couple months before it was due to end. Um, So I was a fellow at the library company of Philadelphia um, when basically all of Philadelphia shut down. Um, And I am also disabled um, and I'm currently in immunotherapy. So I have been high risk for COVID since the start of the pandemic, um, and it just became untenable to stay in the city, Um, like long waits for toilet paper, um, (laughs) fights over dish soap. Like I couldn't I couldn't handle those kinds of daily um, activities. And I decided that it was more financially viable to move home um, and secure care. So I am back in my childhood home. Um, with my family, which I'm appreciative because I know how hard it is to to shelter in place when you are a single person living in an apartment. It is really tough. Um, so kudos to everyone out there who's currently doing that. I know how hard um, of a situation that is. Um, but right now my mom works from home. My dad is a mechanic, so he um, goes to work daily. And my brother is in undergraduate studies from home. So it is Definitely not how I expected to finish um, my dissertation writing in a house full of people. Um, but I think it's brought unexpected joys that I, I didn't anticipate for my studies and reminded me that there are bigger things in the dissertation that are happening. Um, I think when you're finishing up your studies, it can feel very insular, um, that the dissertation feels so big and so important. Um, and in many ways, the pandemic is kind of eradicating that belief, right? There are so many more important things that are happening right now um, that are worth spending our attention and time on. So it's definitely forced me to take a better work-life balance that perhaps I would not have sought um, had I remained in Philadelphia for the year. Um, but just like Andrew said, of course, it's hard to secure resources, hard to secure books, um, as helpful as our universities have been. Um, with like scanning and digitizing sources for us, uh, that's it's just not possible to the to the scope of writing a dissertation. Um, so I'm incredibly thankful that I basically had two years of study in Philadelphia on long-term fellowships um, and was really proactive about scanning and digitizing all of my materials. So going into my dissertation research, I really made it a priority to collect all my my sources first and then analyze. Um, and I'm very thankful. I could not have anticipated it would, it would be this useful. Um, but I'm I'm really glad that I took those steps when I first approached my research um, to make sure that I had all the materials should anything happen. Um, but it's been like a very meta situation to be a disabled person during a pandemic, writing on the history of healthcare and ableism, while also experiencing discrimination. Um, it's yeah, it's not not a lens that I expected to approach my dissertation with, but it definitely has changed um, how I've approached my research um, and my disability studies lens for that research, um, as well as my conclusions for my dissertation and, and mm-hmm. thoughts about moving forward now.
you know, well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure hearing that is just incredibly useful to many people out there who probably have their, their own stories of trying to cope with taking on a big intellectual project with high stakes in the middle of this pandemic. Um, and I'm sorry you had to leave the fellowship in Philadelphia, um, which I can vouch for is just a lively intellectual environment. But it, it also sounds like you really had, you're a good researcher. <laughs> I wish I could say, you know, I'm a fast writer and a, and a poor researcher in the sense I'm not very organized when I go into the archives. I would have been, it would, this would have been impossible for me because I, 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 I never learned how to research the way that you're describing right now. I, it did occur to me, you were just, just discussing your home life there. Um, I wonder, you know, a lot of us struggle to explain to our parents what it is we do. Well, you had a lot of time to, to do that. A, a dinner table conversation's been interesting. You know, chapter three, let's go into, you know, explaining footnotes over, uh, over the dessert course. Has that been helpful? I think it's been helpful in in reassessing the scope and the outcomes of my dissertation, um, because obviously it is very applicable to this current moment. So the pandemic actually helps me relate the importance of my work to my family, um, who I don't think have quite understood the scope of it um, before now. I'd like to get a little bit into, into your work um, for each of you. And I know that both of you think and write about access. As a, as a sort of organizing concept. It has so many different um, valences this year in, this, in the pandemic and throughout the history of medicine. Well, so let's start with that. And um, Andrew, let me ask you this first. Uh, and Nicole, I want to hear from you on it too. Just the way the concept of access works in your own research. And maybe if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, your own um, the empirical work you're doing, but then how that sort of that same discussion maps on what you're seeing throughout the pandemic? So I think with access, the, the main way that I think about it in, in my own research is um, about the ability to pay for healthcare. Um, so access in terms of cost. Um, and so I work on the British National Health Service, which is you know a, a universal healthcare system that gives uh, hospital treatment, um, physician appointments and so on, uh, free at the point of use. So there's no insurance requirement. There is no, uh, payment involved in, in, in any, in any way. Obviously, that is a very different, um, system to, uh, the U.S. healthcare system, which is, uh, more of a market-based system based on, on, on payment. And I think, um, the ways that I've seen it sort of, or the way I've kind of thought about my own research is, in, in, in terms of access during the pandemic is, and, and this is the thing that um, a few people have said about the pandemic, is the way that pandemics as events kind of cast into sharp relief problems in society. And I think one of these problems, particularly in the US context, is the ability to afford and pay for care. And I think um, especially um, during, you know, there have been points in the, in, in the pandemic where unemployment has been extremely high, uh, I think reaching up to like 15% odd. And if your ability to access care is is linked to uh, your insurance, which you get through a job, then obviously, you know, you no longer have access to care. And so I, I've been thinking a, a lot about, um, I guess, how shocks, like shocks like a pandemic 
you know, suddenly take away people's access to, to, to care, especially in um, market-based systems like the US. But I think one of the other things I've been thinking about in terms of access is what's going to happen after the pandemic, after it, after it ends. And I think, you know, even in countries like the UK, where this problem of cost is, is, is not an issue, there are still going to be problems with access, particularly when it comes to, you know, the backlog of surgeries, um, treatments that are going to have to take place that after the pandemic ends that have just been postponed or delayed or cancelled because of hospitals having to deal with the crisis that's in front of them, which is which is COVID nineteen, and so it's one of these things where you know you could say, well, in other industrialized nations where you don't have to pay for healthcare in the same way that you do in the US, the access problem is 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 eased in that sense, but you still have other access problems. Um, I think particularly with the with the managing the the demand uh, created by a pandemic, I think that's something that we, we're going to see in the next the next few years, really. Uh, let me follow up a little bit on this, and maybe you can help me understand, because I, I saw this playing out in Italy early on in the pandemic, and I think we've seen it in the UK as well. Countries that have national health service, um, in which the way a lot of Americans think about healthcare, um, you know, constantly interacting with insurance companies, multiple different payers, hugely confusing, that that is not so much an issue, or you can correct me if, if it is, um, but that the minute there was stress on the system, then, as you said, the whole discussion of access, which seems to just be, well, of course, everybody has access to it. It's a, it's a national utility. But then you found that austerity and the disinvestment in the system limited access in a quite disruptive and very unnerving way to a lot of people who hadn't been following maybe the politics of investment in those, in those systems. First of all, have I kind of, is that narrative square with what you understand? But, but then also, can you contextualize that a little historically for us? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think you're right to say that, uh, that I think in a European context, in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, you know, a lot of countries were pursuing, um, austerity. Um, and cutting budgets that included health budgets. And, and you saw that across the UK, including, including, uh, sorry, across Europe, including the UK. And that ultimately has had, you know, we're seeing the fruits of that now, right? Like the fact that, you know, um, there aren't as many nurses as there should be in hospitals, or there are not as many primary, uh, care physicians as there should be. That is, you know, we're absolutely seeing the effect of that right now. But that that is a that is a particular legacy of of the prior decade of austerity that we have. Nicole, I know you bring a disability studies lens to this, and we bring you in on this as well. And also, you're working on early America, and so I'm curious about you know how even the concept of we're talking about healthcare access, how does that translate back in time? What kind of terminology do people use? What's their conceptualization of whether or not they have access to what we call healthcare? Sure. Uh, yeah, for me, I think I read access as an issue of equity. Um, so whether all people in society have access to healthcare or not. Um, so I personally study the history of medical welfare systems. So the integration of medical systems and welfare systems in early Philadelphia um, and ableist medical policies um, during hospital formation. 
Um, so I tell a pretty, unfortunately, a, a pretty tragic story um, in Philadelphia where this community-based pension system fell apart in the 1830s. Um, so for many years in Philadelphia from the colonial era into the early 1800s, welfare managers who were called the overseers of the poor or eventually the guardians of the poor paid pensions out to disabled individuals and their family members. Um, so you could petition a local guardian of the poor for a pension that was basically a supplemental income to whatever income your family made. Um, and you could claim a pension on behalf of yourself or as a caregiver to someone with a disability. So there was a clear acknowledgement that um, disability was incompatible with economic uh, capacity. Um, so there was an acknowledgement that basically you could not compete at the same level in, in a capitalist society as someone else competing with an able-bodied. Um, and so unfortunately in the early, uh, the early 1800s, that system kind of falls apart as there are broader welfare reforms. Um, so physicians key in and they basically say, you know, the, the underlying issue with uh, poverty in the city is intemperance, right? So poverty becomes blamed on a lot of other social issues um, that were not necessarily um, part of the poverty issue. Um, and for disabled people, this is basically the process that leads to institutionalization, um, which is really unfortunate part of our medical history. Um, so when the pension system falls apart, essentially wealthy individuals in the city, along with physicians, elect to establish this brand new almshouse that is meant to reform patient habits um, and kind of uh, reconstitute people to able-bodiedness even though that's that's an impossibility that they are never going to be able to do. Um, so the almshouse moves from the center of Philadelphia um, across the banks of the Schuylkill. Uh, it has 3,000 beds compared to 300 beds. Right? It's just like a massive scaling up um, of a surveillance system and a power system that's meant to oversee and provide surveillance and ensure that the habits of the poor are changing, not necessarily um, meeting the general needs of disabled people. Um, so unfortunately for me, it's a story of lost access to community-based care, um, a loss of access to being humanized in a medical system, um, and a loss of independence, um, which I also frame as access to the city. Um, and unfortunately those things have lasting effects and processes, um, that we can trace to today. Um, we know that healthcare is directly tied to access and privilege, which is unfortunate, but our public health system in the US has not been great at tackling systemic inequalities in the system. Um, so things that we call uh, healthcare disparities and social determinants of health haven't really been major targets of our public health movements, even though we know that they are underlying issues. So Andrew said that you know, the pandemic is bringing out moments like a flashpoint um, of major issues. But I would argue that these issues are always there. It's just like we as white people don't have to think about them very often. Um, and I think communities of color always have to think about these issues. Um, these are just not being addressed in our public health system. Um, so they might come as flashpoints to some of us, but for others, they are, are daily issues that that deserve 
to be addressed because they are based in racism and sexism and ableism. Um, and unfortunately, our healthcare system is not phenomenal at tackling those issues, um, nor is there like welfare funding to do so. Andrew, I want to give you a chance to comment or ask any questions you you might have and, and some of the themes that Nicole was just talking about and how they resonate with what you're working on. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I mean, and, and you know, when I was saying about flashpoints, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of this stuff has such, as, as your work shows, such deep roots, right? Like we kind of read and open up the news and, and, it, and it seems novel, but as, as you said, like so many of the, the legacies of, of these problems with access are so longstanding and so much, you know, it's not as if there hasn't been discussion about addressing you know, racial inequalities or class inequalities or whatever it is in, in, in public health, but, but the resources have not been mobilized behind it, the, the political will has not been put behind it, and, 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 and the pandemic is, is just such a, a tragic reminder of that, I think. And I think, to your point about institutionalization, I think that's another thing that I've been thinking about during the pandemic, actually, and, and particularly with our um visual and like our kind of perceptions of like how much of a crisis this is and i've been thinking a little bit about like hospitals as as, as spaces so you know the way that you know um newspapers or social media will focus on um moments when there's a kind of um you know ic unit icu units have too many patients in in their in their beds and then you know they have to set up a makeshift ICU unit in a parking lot or something, you know, those, so that's a kind of spilling out of the medical care beyond the hospital um, that suddenly kind of captures public attention and, and, and ramps up the sense of, of, of crisis in, in public imagination. So I think that's something about, you know, what's visible and what's invisible and, and, and what, that, what that does to our understanding of the crisis. You know, that attention to, to those kinds of details also brings to mind to me just the, well, we could call it enjoyment, but it's also the real challenge of doing archival work because there's so many silences and absences in there. And I, Nicole, I just, as you were describing, I mean, I've, I've taught a course for many years in the history of Philadelphia and um, I just, I don't know the city at all. I feel like I'm constantly discovering things. Could you share a little bit of, um, you know, maybe even, what you're finding in the in the APS collection, you know, materials that um, you're relying on to tell this story, as you say, a sort of a loss of access story in a period of time that's usually framed as a great era of democratization, a sort of Jacksonian period. What kind of sources you're finding there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my research project started at the City Archives of Philadelphia, which are critically underfunded and need donations. Um, but basically it came from a surprise, one of the surprise finds that every person wants to find, right? Every historian wants that like special, perfect source to find. Um, and I luckily found it by finding these pension records, um, that existed throughout the 1820s and thirties, um, where basically it wrote down the name of every pensioner, their family members, how educated their children were, what kind of money they received, whether they were widowed, how old they were, their port of disembarkment from Europe, uh, how long they had lived in the city, how long they had paid rent in the city, what former occupations they had. Like it was just this treasure trove of information that I didn't know 
what to do with at first. Um, So I was very lucky um, to find that over my first year of graduate studies um, on like a summer research trip to Philadelphia. Um, And from then, from there, my research project kind of built around that one resource. Um, So the APS, I, um, I was so lucky to find a lot of um, like physician notebooks about early case studies so I could get a sense of, you know, what kinds of ways can we even start to think about disability and is that the right term to use and what kinds of individual cases are people treating and how are they treating them? How do therapeutics differ between acute and chronic cases? And when does a doctor decide that something is chronic? Um, these are a lot of the early questions that I still don't have satisfactory answers to all of them. Um, but that I was tackling at the APS. Um, And I feel like one of the privileges of being at the APS was having a really knowledgeable staff um, that could help, you know, guide me through the finding aids and point me towards resources. Um, So I was really lucky to um, be pointed towards some student notebooks of students who practiced um, and held apprenticeships in the city Um, And I got to get a sense of, you know, what are people being taught? How are patients being talked about? um, And what kind of biases are embedded um, in those discussions? Andrew, I wanted to kind of ask you the same question just about source material. Uh, I'm a big fan of institutional history. I mean, you've taken on like an institution like no other. I mean, talk about trying to tell an institutional story. What are some of the key sources you, you're relying on in, in explaining these changes that you were describing earlier? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think one of the things I'm trying to do is is, is write a, a different sort of institutional history in the sense that like a lot of um, histories of, of health systems are kind of written about from the top down, right? They're about like policymakers, they're about you know aggregate numbers of funding and how that changes over time, the numbers of doctors that were recruited, this kind of thing. And I'm trying to bring um, a kind of lived perspective. So that is like, how did people interact with this health system and and how it changed over time, as well as um, culture and ideas. So I use a a pretty broad array of sources that range, you know, yes, from official papers, published medical reports, that kind of thing. But also to, you know, I use like, um, opinion polling of, of patients. I use diaries. I use, you know, film, um, uh, art, poetry, plays, these kinds of things. So trying to kind of give a sense of, um, this institution it, that is, um, it ha- really does have cultural valence, you know, like in the UK, the NHS is a kind of beloved institution. A lot of opinion polls show that, you know, is the thing that makes people like most proud to be British ahead of like, you know, the royal family and so on. So I'm trying to capture some of that. Um, and uh, so I'm actually um, a, a fellow at the, the American Philosophical Society at the moment. But unfortunately, I'm in the, the position where I can't actually access, I haven't been able to access the, the sources that I want to look at. But there's, there's a lot of material um, at the APS um, that pertains to um, American interest in the NHS and foreign healthcare systems. So people like um, Ernst Boas, uh, who was a, a famous cardiologist, um, was also very interested in issues of uh, access and equity in healthcare and um, supported uh, universal healthcare. And he, you know, took trips to the UK to study the NHS and so on. 
So um, at the APS, um, when I when I get there, hopefully one day, uh, uh, I'm interested in, in in accessing those kinds of papers and and and, and thinking about how um, foreign you know people that were not British thought about the NHS as well. So it's an institutional history, but I'm trying to kind of do it in the round. So you know within British society how it's thought about, and then also abroad. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and this is the third of our three discussions in partnership with the American Philosophical Society and the Linda Hall Library. And today, hearing about healthcare, healthcare access, and the perspective of two researchers who are writing dissertations in the midst of a global pandemic, Andrew Seaton and Nicole Schroeder, have made time to visit with me today. I want to talk a little bit more about um, welfare. It's kind of building on our earlier conversation that we were having about healthcare access, and I was really struck. This morning, when I looked at the news and um, found out that some legislation had been passed, that's a rare thing in the United States these days, maybe less rare, um, hopefully. And at 530 in the morning, the senators worked all night. I mean, wonders never cease. So I, I was going to read that story. And um, and the framing of it to me was really interesting because it it's, of course, been this discussion that's been going on for since Joe Biden was inaugurated, that the United States Senate had approved emergency legislation um, to allow $1.9 trillion in relief. And the frame of the piece was kind of like, look, see, this is what government can actually do in a crisis. And it brought to mind a sort of longstanding problem in the kind of work I do about how disaster sort of focuses us on what's possible, what the state can do. Sometimes we see that in the negative, what the state has failed to do. But right now, I mean, the framing of that article was, see, this is what's possible. Government can do this. And there's that interplay there between, um, you know, the sort of a state of emergency as a time when the state can be active. But then you spend a couple of minutes thinking about it. You say, well, wait a minute, how come they can't do that on a regular day? And, and why are we so captured by the capacity of the state in wartime or in disaster or in pandemic and maybe spend less time and attention and fewer headlines on just the everyday workings of the welfare state? There's no question in there. It's just a long statement. There was something that was on my mind this morning. But I know you both are thinking about, you know, these issues of the welfare state in your in your work. And maybe you could reflect a little bit on how your thinking has maybe changed through COVID-19 or sharpened a little bit, how you see the past perhaps differently through the lens of COVID-19. Nicole, I want to um, bring you in on that first. Yeah, um, unfortunately for me, it's kind of the same story that I'm seeing in my research and that disabled people are written out of the welfare state, essentially. Um, so disabled individuals who are collecting didn't receive that $1,200. Um, if you collect on SSI, the max benefit you can receive is $783 a month. Like it's just disabled people continue to be pushed into poverty level existence without help. Um, and access to Medicare, Medicaid um, is something that is not universal. It is really hard to apply for. Access to disability is not universal. Most people fail their initial disability interview, even if they have cases that are well-documented, supported by medical professionals. Um, the state makes it very hard um, to be disabled and to not receive care from someone else. You either need to be married or have generational wealth or continue to work if you want to secure 
access to medical care and independence in every any form. Um, and for decades, dis disability rights movement has been fighting for community-based care centers um, and movement of resources away from these major hospital systems and institutions into other alternate forms of care. Um, and it largely has not been supported, even though we know it has better health outcomes. So unfortunately, this is not, this is just a depressing moment where I'm reminded every day that utilitarian ethics still matter. And that if I walk into a hospital that doesn't have resources at the same time as a healthy person, like I'm gonna be sent home. Just to stay with this for a minute, because this, this discourse about um, what kinds of benefits disabled people could apply for during this time is is a really important discussion. I think we haven't had it enough. You know, there was early on in the pandemic, there was this um, discussion about mutual aid and about community care for disabled populations. And it, it seemed and, and there was also an interesting conversation about the possibility of remote access. And so many businesses in America, and I assume around the world, all of a sudden made it possible to work at home and to accommodate, to provide accommodations which disabled People had been told that's that's not really possible to accommodate you. And then all of a sudden, within a week, they're accommodated. So there were a lot of data points early on that were grabbing my attention. But I, how has that conversation, listening to you talk, you don't think it's coalesced, hasn't really helped the movement, it hasn't expanded disability rights through the pandemic. It just seemed for a moment there was a possibility there. You don't you don't think it's really. I mean, I, I really hope that I'm proven wrong, but we already have studies out that show that people are actually more productive when they work from home. And people are still saying like, well, we need to get back to the office, right? Because work is about surveillance. It's not necessarily about performing the task that is given to you. Um, and people are not necessarily interested in the most economical output. Um, they're interested in the hierarchies that give them power. Um, so unfortunately, I just don't think that this is going to bring lasting change. Um, and I, a lot of people in the disability rights movement are just bitter that we've fought for this for decades and now it's implemented seamlessly. And like, when is the rug gonna be ripped from under us? Is the sense. Like, I know students who, you know, finally have accommodations in their classrooms that allow them to take their classes efficiently and effectively. But how soon are universities going to say, like, well, we can't afford to have in-person classes and, you know, perform this digitally? Um, how quickly are conferences going to go back to being in-person, right? Which is financially an impossibility for lots of groups of people, not just disabled people. Um, unfortunately, I think, like, this is the most accommodated I've ever been in my life. And I don't think it's going to last, which is upsetting. Andrew, I want to just bring you in on this, you know, sort of big question of the state in disaster. Um, but I think I'm, I'm really uh, provoked by, you know, this case that Nicole's talking about, 
the possible expansion of disability rights in this moment, which is totally within the purview of the state to do that any time it wishes to do so, that seems very much in flux right now, potentially an exciting moment for the expansion of rights. But Nicole is expressing, I think, some important cautions and caveats here that are important for us to take on board. Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Nicole. I think it's a, it's a, it's an open question at the moment. And I, and I think there is in a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of articles about, you know, the end of the office and, and this sort of thing. And, and that's not inevitable. I think, like as Nicole said, there are a lot of workplaces and a lot of companies that will want employees back for lots of different reasons. That said, I think, you know, you might see, um, I think you'll see an increase in working from home afterwards, even if it's, you know, it's not going to be 100%, but you will see an increase, it seems to me. And, but I, but I kind of worry a little bit about even what that looks like. Uh, you know, the fact is, if you're working from home, you know, you have to pay for your own electricity, your own heating, you know, some people will get food at their work and so on. You now have to pay for that yourself. There is a kind of way cynically that companies could use this and, you know, promote home working as a kind of flexible living uh, choice that they offer their employees. But actually, it turns to this thing that they're cynically using it for, for cost cutting. That said, um, you know, certainly just to speak from, from, from academia, you know, I, I, I co-run a, a workshop in, in, in British history that we founded basically in response to the, to the pandemic, um, to help early career researchers, you know, share their work and, and get ideas because, you know, work, workshops shut down, conferences shut down and getting that kind of feedback is so important to people that are early on in their, in their careers. And, and, you know, we've, we've done some, some surveys of, of people who come in and people seem to like it. People seem to like, um, the ability to participate in a seminar, a conference, a talk virtually for a host of different reasons, you know, whether that's because they're disabled or they're older and they can't travel or they don't have the money to travel to things like conferences or that, you know, they're in a rural environment and they're not near major universities or research networks, all these kinds of things. So I think there's a, there's an appetite out there for it. For me, myself, I would like to see it certainly become a continued part of the mix in the future, right? Like, you know, conferences where you do allow people increasingly to, um, participate digitally if they want to you know another payoff is the environment right the amount of uh emissions that are produced by you know academics flying all around the world to to give a 20 minute paper is is immense you know uh you know i often ask myself is what i what is really anything that i say worth that amount of emissions probably not so an ability to do that virtually i think is a is a good thing but i think it's a kind of open question though but it's not inevitable I like how you brought that right back into our own our own communities and to think about this. And I mean, I came up in a, in a time in which, you know, you did exactly that. You, you, you found yourself giving a talk in a in a hotel ballroom in Minneapolis on a Sunday morning to seven people. And you thought, I mean, I didn't have the, the disability rights perspective on that and wish I had at that time, because we should have been thinking about that too. Is there something so important that we're doing together in this space with this old antiquated model of meeting that precludes thinking first about access? And 
of course, that jostles our notion of what an academic community looks like. Nicole, back to you on on that community. Yeah. Community formation and reformation is really in flux right now, I think. It is, which I think is really exciting to think about who has access both to the archives. Um, I really liked how Patrick was talking about remote um, opportunities for fellows um, who might have, you know, childcare responsibilities or other work opportunities or, you know, reasons to stay um, locally while they conduct their research, uh, you know, miles and miles away across the country. And I think that's really exciting to hear about the community building possibilities and the people that we can bring into the academy who currently don't really have a voice here. Um, and I think that if we are really going to promote diversity, equity, and inclusivity, then we, did, we need to think about, you know, the structures of the academy um, and who is in the room and who is not there. Um, so universal design principles demand that we plan ahead to, you know, encounter those barriers and overcome those barriers. And I think that we're seeing professors implement universal design in their pedagogy now. We're seeing you know, this taken at a, an institution level, that there are resources for live captioning uh, of your virtual conferences. And there are resources for all of these, um, you know, adaptive technologies that ne weren't necessarily part of our planning um, before the pandemic hit. So I'm really excited to see how far that can go. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls and you can still get questions in if you want to put them up in YouTube live or you can. We have a pretty active um, conversation looks like going on on Twitter. If you want to get um, a comment or a question in on Twitter, just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. I'm talking to Andrew Seaton and Nicole Schroeder today about healthcare access and also about writing a dissertation in the in the middle of a pandemic. I wanted to um, come back, actually, just for a minute um, to a kind of a research question that really plagues me. Um, and it has to do, you know, back in how we how we think about the state and how we think about sources. And I'm so really worried that future historians will think that the only people who existed in the United States this year were Tony Fauci and Donald Trump. And because they've just absorbed almost all of the, you know, sort of personality driven reporting and scholarship, too. And it's not that to me, Trump is unimportant, um, but it's such a funhouse mirror in terms of source production. And it really it demands of us, I think, some. Um, well, let me put it this way. It's made me rethink the way I think about disasters when I go back and read them. And there's so much emphasis on executive power and relatively less emphasis on legislative power or the power of the courts. So I just wanted to throw that out to you, not to give. So here I am giving Trump too much airtime right now. But as a research problem, it has made me think about my own materials differently. Andrew, I don't know if that resonates with anything you're writing about, but I mean, even with the health service, I would imagine that prime ministers and, you know, get a lot of attention and a lot of, you know, airtime in terms of their great visions for the health service and um, the people who made it happen maybe don't appear in the archives as much. I don't know. What does it look like in, from your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, that goes back to the to the institutional history question. And, and, and certainly, you know, histories of the, of the National Health Service in the UK and, and, and also, you know, other health systems, you know, whether it's the US or, or wherever, 
you know, those kinds of historical actors, your prime ministers, you know, your big doctors, your, you know, World Health Organization officials and so on. Those are the ones that, you know, people talk about the most and they leave the largest imprint in the archives. But, you know, there are there are sources out there that you can talk about, you know, ordinary people and and, and um, get access to um, uh, people from lots of different lenses, whether that's working class people or people of color or women or whoever it is. And uh, those are the kinds of sources that I'm looking for when I'm when I'm when I'm in the archive, really, because those are the ones that just haven't been included in 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 the histories. Um, so yeah, it's certainly something that I'm always looking for, but it can be difficult, you know, and because they just, you know, are not as much of a presence in in, in the archives, really. And it's a, it's kind of a particular. It, it, all types of history have this problem, but there's something about the history of medicine in the way that it was written for so long, from the perspective of doctors, from the perspective of politicians coming up with grand schemes for the health system, and and you know. Philanthropists and so on. It, it's not so much about patients and and you know more of that bottom up perspective. So there's something about the history of medicine that that does make it quite quite challenging. I think. I mean, as a person trained in the history of technology, yeah, you know, would be easy to read that that literature up until maybe 20 years ago and think that, you know, basically only, you know, Thomas Edison had lived and Henry Ford maybe, and that's about as much as you got. And and users were discovered and consumers were discovered at some point. Um, but there's so much more work to do in that regard. And Nicole, I want to bring you in on this as well. You know, you describing the sources earlier that you, your, your, wonderful find in the archive, which has launched you in some ways in the direction you've taken. It's a real people's history of healthcare in, in Philadelphia, maybe in some ways the opposite problem to a certain extent. It doesn't reveal, or to what extent does it reveal the sort of power structures above in terms of the medical establishment or executive power in the city or the state? Yeah, I think for me, it's really hard because these Patient bodies are always regulated through some kind of institution, whether it's welfare or medical. Um, so I can't always trust the sources that I have uh, as accurate representations of those individuals and their lives. Um, so I try to reconstruct them um, as much as possible by looking for acts of resistance um, in the hospitals. So people who would check themselves out and go to a dram shop down the street. Um, people who would actively, you know, bring in food for their loved ones to the hospital, um, people who would choose to leave or to remove a family member from an institutional setting um, to provide home-based care instead. I'm interested in stories um, where people would buy patent medicine or consumer trends. Um, so I try to balance my narrative, at least. I don't think it's ever possible to build a true, like, bottom-up narrative that is accurate um, without overtaking the voices of those people. Um, so I try my best to balance it, but it's certainly not perfect. We're almost up on time, but I, I would like to get one more question in, and I hope that my colleagues here will tolerate it because I think it's an important one right now. Um, it's no um, surprise to anyone that the job market, the academic job market is a challenging one and in history of science and medicine and technology it's it's always been challenging and now we're in the middle of this pandemic so you've got to finish your dissertation and also think about postdocs or um you know 
assistant professorships and other sorts of things. How are you approaching it? What are you seeing out there? What um, we talked a little bit earlier about the way that maybe new communities of scholars are forming at this time. I don't know if that's having any impact on how the job market itself is working. I'd like to hear a little bit about how you're thinking about it, how you're approaching it. Nicole, can I start with you on that? I think I'm just trying to approach it with grace um, and thankfulness for the things that I've learned during my PhD and the time that I've had to do this research. Um, but it is depressing and quite disappointing, to be honest. Um, there was one job posting for a history of medicine position this year, and there is one postdoc in disability studies posting. Um, so it is disappointing to know that these are topics that really need to be addressed at universities. Um, and unfortunately, in a lot of medical schools and universities, there is not a historian of medicine or a historian of disability studies. Um, I made a bet six years ago that disability studies would be in every university across the United States by the end of my graduate studies. Because to me, like this is my personal culture, this is my identity. Um, if a university didn't have a woman in gender studies department, we would say that it's missing a critical lens. And I think most universities are missing that critical lens by uh, missing disability studies. Um, and I think that if we are actively going to uh, attract disabled students to higher education in greater proportions, which we are doing, over 10% of our undergraduates are disabled and identify as such. And we really, really need disabled faculty members. And we need people to teach disability history and culture and justice. Um, and I would have loved to have that person as a disabled undergrad, and I didn't have that person. And I wanted to be that person for someone else. And I don't think I'm going to have the chance to. Um, so for me, moving forward, it's just thinking about how I can approach this with grace um, and help my community to the, the greatest possible extent. Um, so I'm looking at jobs in the federal sector. I'm also looking at a lot of nonprofit jobs. Um, and those are both avenues that I think can um, be really fulfilling. University presidents, provosts, deans, department heads, trustees who are listening, that's about the most economical and moving case for disability studies hiring I've ever heard. Um, and it should absolutely be taken up. I don't see how anybody can expect to learn anything from this pandemic if we don't make a commitment. And there's a lot of deferred commitment that has a lot of talk for the, as you described, for as long as I've been in the academy, um, that we're gonna include those voices, include those voices, and it's a workshop or a class or something like that, that's a good start, but that's not where it should finish. Thank you for that, Nicole. That, that was really beautifully said. Andrew, I would like to bring you in as well, just how you're thinking about you know, your work fitting into um, what's out there in the job market and how you're handling that, that, uh, that search. Yeah, so similar to Nicole, already, I'm, you know, finishing the dissertation, applying for the very limited, you know, postdocs and, 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 and jobs that are out there and trying to keep optimistic about it. Um, I think particularly on social media, you have to be very careful. And Nicole made this point at the beginning about the news, right? Like you, I, I've kind of similarly been trying to limit my engagement in 
uh, academic Twitter in some ways because you know people are understandably very frustrated and, and angry about um, the hand that has been served the uh, 2020 uh, graduates. Uh, which you know statistically, according to the American American Historical Association, is is you know the worst ever. So you know, but you know, if you're going to go down, you know, you want to go down on the worst ever. I think in some, in some ways, there's an honor to that. But um, I think with this point, you know, there's a kind of interesting paradox with this, in the sense that I was thinking about this last year. You know, history as a thing is 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 so discussed. You know, in the news, you know, the the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, you know, statues, the backlash to that from the Trump administration and, you know, the 1776 project, all this kind of thing. And there are echoes of that in the UK and in other countries as well. History is with us and people are buying history books and people are interested in history. But, you know, universities are closing down humanities departments. They're closing down history departments. So it's an interesting thing where people, uh, politicians, uh, like to talk about how important history is, but um, are not giving any practical support to actual historians. So it's a it's a very weird uh, time to be um, to be a historian and 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 graduating in in that context really, um, and squaring that circle in the way that it's talked about in the public imagination, and then uh, the reality of it on the job market. Uh, two people that are already making a difference with their scholarship, and thank you for um, your sort of honest assessment of where of where things are. And I couldn't agree more, too. I mean, um, again, to keep pretending like we're learning from history, but then not invest in the practitioners of that learning, um, is it just doesn't make any any sense at all. It doesn't that historical knowledge doesn't come free. I, I think people, you know, the sort of um, politics of surprise is really devastating around the world. We see that um, with death counts, Real, the, the stakes are very high. So thank you both for your sort of honest ruminations about the job market and the need for the kind of expertise that you bring. I'm gonna bring Adriana back out and give her any uh, warning. I was gonna do this, but just to bring her in and see if she had anything she wanted to add and also just thank her for helping put together these three great discussions this week. Yeah, um, just wanted to say, and I, I've been lurking in the comments. I'm sorry, my lighting is so bad. I had no warning for this. Um, but just what a privilege it is to to have been, um, you know, able to to learn and work with both Andrew and Nicole uh, during their fellowships uh, at the APS. I mean, this is why it's so important to maintain um, a diverse uh, fellowship community because you really do learn um, so much from having uh, people in conversation who who. You know, just brings so much from their own from their own perspectives and and and, and expertise. So uh, thank you both for for doing this, and and thank you Scott for uh, for this collaboration. It's really been a treat to. Are talk you already? With all of you. Are you already programming the next ones? Because I think we should get started on that. <laughs> I, you know, I I'm always programming, Scott. I know, yeah, I know you are. Well, look, I mean, Rebecca Martinson is telling us that this is the best COVID calls to date. I like that. I like that um, too. Yeah. Um, well, I want to thank my guests uh, and my colleague, Adriana Link, first of all, and my guests, Andrew Seaton and Nicole Schroeder, for their time today on COVID Calls. Really learned a lot from you in this discussion. I want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch it every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. 
I'm going to close today um, with a brief COVID calls programming note. Um, this is my last broadcast on COVID calls from the United States. Not my last, but my last from the United States. January 31st was my last day after 20 years at Drexel University. And next week, I'm starting a new position as a professor in the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy at KAIST, the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology in Daejeon, South Korea. I'm going to miss my Drexel colleagues. I'm going to miss Philadelphia. I'm going to miss my students. But I'm also really excited to start work with new students and new colleagues at KAIST. COVID Calls is going to take a two-day break. Uh, so Monday and Tuesday, there will be no COVID calls, but I will be back on Wednesday for my first broadcasts from South Korea, and I will have started my two-week quarantine at that time. So I'll be looking forward to talking um, with everybody more then. We have guests um, lined up for next week and beyond, including Kate Starbird next week. So please do join me for that. And um Look forward to speaking with everybody then. I want everybody to stay healthy, and thanks for tuning in to COVID Calls. And Andrew and Nicole, thanks again for your time today. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. See you next week, everybody.